Hello and welcome to the Book of John, the podcast series. I'm Brianna Segrist, and we're traveling together through the Gospel of John so that we can see for ourselves who Jesus really is, so that we can recognize him for ourselves in our own life. Today we're continuing in John chapter 18. We're actually picking up again in verse 28 and reading the end of this chapter. It's Jesus before Pilate. Just a little bit of a, you know, the story of Jesus being on trial is kind of an interesting story because, you know, like our justice system has kind of a normal flow of authority. There's, you know, you might get arrested by a police officer and taken and booked at the local county jail where then you have a lawyer appointed to you and then you go see a judge and then you're put on trial and maybe you have a jury or maybe you don't have a jury depending on the type of crime you have. And then if you want to appeal, you go to another judge that is above that judge. And then if you want to appeal that, you go to another job that is above that judge. But there's kind of a bounce around of authority happening with Jesus in this in this um series of chapters where Jesus is going to Caiaphas the high priest and then he goes to Pilate and then he gets sent to Herod and I think one of the reasons this is is because the area of Israel at this time is an occupied territory Rome which who is ruled by Caesar is has taken over so much of the world that Rome then sends his forces or sends their forces and delegates and, um, you know, authorities, governors to the different places where they're occupying to rule. But then within each of these nations and these places where Rome has conquered, there are still the people themselves who live there and have kind of a, a semblance of their own structure and government. And one of the things that's going on here is that so Caiaphas, the high priest, is the head of the Jewish government, because at that time, the law and the church were the same thing. But the Roman authorities are different, and ultimately the Roman authorities are above the Jewish authorities. So Caiaphas um, is sending, he examines Jesus and questions Jesus, and then he sends him on to the Roman authorities to be punished. Because the Jewish people were allowed to punish their own people for their own crimes, but they were not allowed to put anyone to death. So essentially what's happening is the the Sanhedrin, who are the Jewish officials, they know that they want Jesus to be tried and hopefully put to death. So they sent him to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is the official over Jerusalem. He's the Roman He's the only Roman person who has the authority to issue the death sentence. So we're going to read now what happens when Jesus goes to Pilate. But the interesting thing, I guess, about what's going on is that he's also taken to Herod, Herod Antipas. And the reason why he's taken to Herod, we, we hear that he goes, so we know that he goes to Caiaphas, he goes to Pilate, and he goes to Herod. This is not the same Herod that was, you know, ruling when Jesus was born. It's, I think, his son, Herod Antipas. Anyway, the reason why Pilate sends Jesus to Herod is because Pilate doesn't want to ha- kill Jesus. He doesn't want to have Jesus put to death. He doesn't. Fe- he feels like he's um, hasn't done anything worth killing him for. So he sends him over to Herod, perhaps because you know Herod is the one that had John the Baptist put to death. So maybe Pilate thinks, well, Herod has more of a stomach for this, or 
something. So he sends Jesus over to Herod. The reason why Herod also has the authority is because Herod is the person who's in charge of Galilee, which is where Jesus is from. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus from Galilee, that area. And so he sends he sends him over to Herod, who happens to be in Jerusalem because it's the Passover. It's a feasting time. So let's pick up in John chapter 18 and find out what happens when Jesus goes before Herod. Now, before we even really begin to read, remember that Jesus is not defending himself. Jesus is on trial and he's not, he's not claiming that he does not deserve this. He's not doing anything at all to plead his own case. So let's see what Jesus does do when Jesus is put on trial. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't plead his own case. But what does he do? Let's look for the answer to that question as we read. I'm in John chapter 18, beginning in verse 28, and I'm reading out of the voice. Before the sun had risen, Jesus was taken from Caiaphas to the governor's palace. The Jewish leaders would not enter the palace because their presence in a Roman office would defile them and cause them to miss the Passover feast. Pilate, the governor, instead came outside. There's a note here in the voice. Now Caiaphas is high priest at this time. The sacred office he occupies has been corrupted for more than a century by Jewish collaboration with Greeks and Romans. Reformers are few, and they have been unable to cleanse the high office from its pollutants. Because of this, many Jews have stopped coming to the temple. How can God's holy habitation on earth be pure if its primary representative is coddling the enemies of Israel? Caiaphas knows he needs friends in high places to put an end to Jesus, so he turns to Pilate, the Roman governor. It is Pilate's job to look out for Roman interests in Judea. He is an irritable man, unnecessarily cruel, and intentionally provocative. Many Jews die on his watch. For Pilate, Jesus is just one more. Pilate says, What charges do you bring against this man? The priests answer, If he weren't a lawbreaker, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Pilate says, Then judge him yourselves by your own law. The Jews answer, Our authority does not allow us to give him the death penalty. All of these things were a fulfillment of the words that Jesus had spoken, indicating the way he would die. So Pilate re-entered the governor's palace and called for Jesus to come with him. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, Are you asking me because you believe this is true, or have others said this about me? Pilate said, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your people, including the chief priests, have arrested you and placed you in my custody. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not recognized in this world. If this were my kingdom, my servants would be fighting for my freedom. But my kingdom is not in this physical realm. Pilate answered, So you're a king? Jesus said, You, ha you say that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the cosmos, to demonstrate the power of truth. Everyone who seeks truth hears my voice. Pilate what is truth? Pilate left Jesus to go and speak to the Jewish people. Pilate says to the Jews, I have not found any cause for charges to be brought against this man. Your custom is that I should release a prisoner to you each year in honor of the Passover celebration. Shall I re release the king of the Jews to you? 
And the Jews answered, No, not this man. Give us Barabbas. Now you should know that Barabbas was a terrorist. So what has happened here? Pilate comes out. He asks the Jewish people, What charges do you bring against him? He knows they've brought a prisoner. That He knows that they are wanting him to be punished. But when he asks what the charges are, they answer kind of nebulously. They say, if he wasn't guilty, we wouldn't have brought him. So then he says, well, then you, you punish him by your own law. And the Jews say, our authority does not allow us to give him the death penalty. So then Pilate knows that he not only want, they not only want Jesus punished, they want Jesus dead. So he goes back into the palace and calls Jesus to come inside the palace. Nobody else will go inside of there. And why won't they go in there? Because if according to Jewish custom, you had to be ceremonially clean in order to do certain things. And tonight is the Passover. It's one of the biggest festivals of the whole entire year. And they don't want to miss it because they've gone inside the palace. Because it's a Gentile's palace. It's not a Jewish, it's not a Jewish building. They don't want to touch anything and make themselves unclean. Isn't that kind of interesting? I mean... Haven't you, haven't, haven't we all had these kind of circumstances where in trying to do what we think, what we think is right, we end up doing incredibly wrong things. For instance, how many times have you been rushing around trying to get something done that you know should be done? And meanwhile, while you are rushing around trying to do this good thing, you treat poorly the person, the people you're interacting with. This is just what's going on with the Jewish people here. They are trying to do what is right by the Lord. And what are they doing? They are absolutely doing the worst thing they can do. <laughs> Putting an innocent man to death. Rejecting the Son of God. I think we should take it to heart. I think we should check ourselves. Do we do this? Do we, do we put strange requirements on ourselves and miss what is actually important to the Lord and miss doing the good that the Lord would actually have us do. And so Pilate takes him inside and questions him. Pilate is not a believer. Pilate is not a Jewish person. He is completely a Gentile. And not only a Gentile, but he is in many senses a wicked man. And now Jesus is alone with him, and Pilate asks him a few questions. We can't really know the motives of Pilate's hearts. The only thing we can do is read the words and wonder. Is Pilate actually looking for justice here? Is Pilate curious why the Jews hate him so much? Has Pilate heard any rumors about Jesus? At any rate, the very first thing he asks when he gets into the room is, Are you the king of the Jews? Why does, he answer, why does he ask this question? Well, of course, if Jesus is claiming to be a king, then that is threatening to the Roman rule because the Jews weren't supposed to have a king under the Roman rule. In fact, Herod was claimed to be the king of the Jews, appointed by Caesar. But the Jewish people weren't allowed to set up any office that might be higher than the Roman than the Roman governor. So maybe he's initially just trying to discover whether or not this man is, in fact, leading a rebellion. 
But Jesus says, are you asking me because you believe this is true or have others said this about me? You know, I wonder if this is how Jesus interacts with us. When you first come to the Lord, I don't know how your experience is when you first came to the Lord, but when you first come to the Lord questioning, is God real? Jesus, are you really real? I wonder if the initial thing that he asks of us is, are you asking me because you think maybe it's true? Or are you asking me because you've heard it? But either way, whether we are wondering whether it's true or whether we've just heard it from somebody else, we are faced with this question ourselves. What do we believe about Christ? And the only person who can really answer it is us going to the Lord. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers him and then Pilate says back in return, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your people have said this, uh, have arrested you and placed me you in my custody. Now what have you done? Jesus answers, My kingdom is not recognized in this world. If this were my kingdom, my servants would be fighting for my freedom. But my kingdom is not in this physical realm. What does this say about our own lives? What does this say about the earth that we live in now? His kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not of this physical realm. Does this mean that Jesus has no power over the physical realm? No, that's not what it means. I mean, we've all seen throughout this book the amazing physical miracles he's done. Healing people and stopping storms. Walking on water. His kingdom is somewhere else. Something else. But what's really beautiful is that the kingdom that Jesus is king over is higher than the physical realm. It's not lower. It's not totally separate. It's higher. It's above the physical realm. What does this mean? If this were my kingdom, my servants would be fighting for my freedom. He goes on and says, For this I have been born, and for this reason I have come. In another translation, he says, To testify to the truth. He's acknowledging that his kingdom is not of this world, but he is in this world for a purpose. And this is the same thing, the same, the same for us. It is the exact same. Our kingdom is not of this world, but we are here for a purpose. And what are we here for? We are here to do what Christ did. And what did he do? He testified to the truth and then he leaves us here on this earth which is not the kingdom that we are citizens of to do the same thing to testify of the truth what is truth Pilate says 
but he doesn't wait around for the answer. Jesus says, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate just answers, what is truth? And walks away. But this is the really, this is a really big, deep question. What is truth? Is truth merely something that can be proven? Is truth a list of facts? Or is truth something much bigger? Is truth something that changes depending on your perspective? Or is truth something that is whether anybody sees it or not? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the eternal truth. What is truth? Truth is Jesus. Jesus is the bedrock that everything else is steady on top of. The other day I was looking through some <laughs> some some you know online things to to send to my brother for Christmas and over and over again I kept finding a common thread. It was it was a a listing for a whole bunch of just funny mugs and t-shirts and things and a lot of them had sayings and quotes from popular media and um, television and music and things like that and over and over again I kept seeing a similar theme and the theme was this idea that science science is the way science is what's really true science is the hope of the world science is the answer to all of life's problems science is really what will save the world and as I was kind of looking through the merchandise and I kept seeing this over and over again and a lot of times it was you know kind of put forward as like almost a jokey way but and like a little tongue-in-cheek but also kind of you know, poking, like sometimes poking fun at um, religion or Christianity. And it made me realize how much science, science is really put forward as the religion of the youngest generation on earth right now. It is pushed as if science or mankind's wisdom is the real truth and I feel like really the you know it used to be that there were different schools of thoughts that kind of pushed against one another and Christianity was constantly facing um, you know pushback from different regions and it used to be that there was kind of a big battle between Protestants and Catholics that was the big you know the big (laughs) conflict but now I feel as if the biggest conflict we see in our generation is children and teens and young people being told that this nebulous idea of science does not coexist with Christianity, does not, um, or it, or even they're told that it proves Christianity wrong. And that the Bible is basically put up as a series of, um, at the worst, historical fiction. And, I mean, at the best, historical fiction. And at the worst, some kind of 
propaganda for power-hungry people who deceive the masses. I see this battle going on. I see the young people going to school and I remember my own self. I remember very clearly being in sixth grade and my science teacher going through one of the first few days of school, going through the, the textbook and kind of giving an overview of each of the units. And one of the units in my textbook in sixth grade was evolution. And of course, that's like a red flag word if you're a young Christian. And so I raised my hand and said, um, you know, Mrs. So-and-so, I don't believe in evolution. I'm a Christian. And I remember that she turned around to me and was extremely kind and extremely friendly and said very calmly and logically, I'm not asking you to believe that people turn in, turned that monkeys turned into humans. I'm just asking you to read the textbook and, and believe the facts that are in there. And I I didn't I didn't say anything and she went on with the rest of the class period. And to be quite honest, I think that was the last time that I ever raised my hand and disagreed with something in school on the basis of my faith, on the basis of what I'd heard in church. Something shifted in me right then in that conversation. I, she seemed so kind and so pleasant and so reasonable that I suddenly felt as if, you know, I had been taught at church that you better watch out because at school they're trying to teach you about evolution and they're just all wicked and horrible. But when I was actually, you know, in the setting where I was interacting with somebody that was talking about evolution, she herself was so kind and reasonable and friendly to me about it. And she seemed to be asking a quite reasonable thing to just believe the facts that I read in the book. That it made me completely, it shook me. And I suddenly didn't know what to think. I suddenly didn't know what what I thought and I see I see my own self there and it was years for me years later that I really read more about creationism for myself and I really began to understood kind of the different arguments that both sides use and have um, and came out on my on my own on my own self with you know I think one one big one big resource that helped me a lot was the truth projects um, with Del Tackett but um, I see young people all around me all the time I see young people coming to church and at church we're taught the Bible's true everything in it is true you can always believe it that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And then they go out into the world and out to school and they're told science is the only truth. Science only concerns itself with facts. Science is how we're going to right all the problems in the world. And science is, science isn't based on 
blind faith. Science is based on scientific theory and discovering things. And I think that the young people of this world are being persuaded because the the truth is that the church is doing a strange thing. Last night I was driving home from a little kids program with my daughters and we were I was talking to them about their relationship with the Lord and about the Bible and things and what they were learning about in their children's class and I realized the church okay it's almost Christmas it's almost Christmas and we all know that the true message of Christmas is what Jesus was born that's the basic that's the root the seed the bedrock of Christmas and yes I realize it's a pagan holiday and it comes from something else but like if that's let's just let's just concede the message of Christmas is Jesus was born but in addition to the message that Jesus is born there are 10,000 other things that involve Christmas you know there's there's Santa and sleighs and jingle bells and presents and stockings. There's the manger and the shepherds and the wise men. There's Christmas carols. There's Christmas shopping. There's the Grinch. There's Rudolph. There's, I mean, Christmas itself has like a laundry list of things that are associated with it. Some of them good, some of them bad. Some of them are wonderful. Some of them are horrible. But in general, there's a long list of things that basically kind of all belong to Christmas. But the real root story of Christmas is what? Jesus was born. I feel like church and Christianity is the same way. The real message of the Bible, the real message of Christ is that God wants a relationship with us. Since the very beginning of the Bible, this is how it goes. God wanted to walk with people. He put us on the earth. He walked in the garden with Abraham. He walked with Enoch. He walked with Abraham. He walked with Moses and then with Joshua. He walked with Isaac too and Jacob for the sake of their father. Like all through the generations, Jesus, the father in heaven, wanted to connect and have relationship with people. And when Jesus came, he came to testify to this truth. He came to testify I have come to reunite you with the one who loves you. He came to die because our sins were separating us from the Father so that we could be reconnected. This is the message of the truth. But just like the message of Christmas gets completely like washed away or overshadowed by the 10,000 other trappings of the season, the message of the Bible becomes just a tiny little part of what we hear at church. And so every week, hundreds and thousands of children come in and out of our ch church buildings and they hear all of these things. They hear, you know, don't steal, don't lie, be a good friend, obey your parents, all of these things that are some good, some bad, some wonderful, some actually kind of horrible. And what we are doing is missing telling our children that it is all about knowing God, walking with him, hearing his voice, 
and actually having a relationship with him. Because I can tell you right now, if you have a deep relationship with the God Almighty, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, if you actually have a walking relationship with him where you are known by him and loved by him, then when you go out into the world and you hear this and that about science and this and evolution and all these different things they're all in the light of the one who loves you of the the experiences you've had in his presence and with his power and then suddenly you don't have to make a decision between what your Sunday school teacher and what your science teacher says it has not it's not between the debate is not between them the debate is between what the God of heaven and earth has said to you in the deepest part of your heart versus what some random adult that you just met two days ago when school started said that is the difference Jesus came to testify to the truth and this is the truth that he is the way to the father he's the way he's the only way and if we go to Jesus and get to the Father, we will be so full up of his truth. We will be so saturated with his life that any lies that come at us, they bounce off of us like the lies that they are. This is the truth of Jesus. And Jesus comes and actually he... What is he doing in our lives now? What is he doing here with Pilate? Pilate is going right to Jesus and saying, who are you? And Jesus answered very clearly, and Pilate is brushing him off. And why? Why? Because Pilate doesn't have time. Because Pilate's mind is full up of earthly things. He doesn't recognize Jesus for who he is. The hope. The life. The, the satisfaction of our souls. Jesus is standing right in front of him, talking to him, and Pilate doesn't even recognize who he is. What is Jesus doing now in our lives? The Spirit is constantly, constantly calling out. In Proverbs it says, Wisdom stands on the street corners calling. Who will answer? What is Jesus doing in your life? What is he doing in the life of people all around you all the time? He is beckoning us, calling to us. And what is our response? We are either like Pilate, we hear him talking, but we don't really understand and we get distracted and move on with our life. Or we stop, kneel down and recognize him for who he is. If you have young people in your life and you're concerned about them, if you're concerned about this worldview that's called science, I, I would like to encourage you to do this. First of all, you need to have an actual living, breathing relationship with Jesus, the Father and the Spirit. You need to have the kind of relationship where they are as real to you as the people in your life are. Get that for yourself first. Get to the secret place. Talk to the Lord. Learn about Him and then draw near to Him. And then out of your out of your relationship, 
Go to those young people and talk to them about your relationship. Disciple them to go, like teach them how to talk to the Lord and how to hear from the Lord, how to go to the secret place and why it's so wonderful to be there. In fact, take them to the secret place with you. When you're, when you have them over, if you have them over for pizza or something, ask them about, you know, ask them about what they're going on, what they're struggling with, and then hold their hands, close your eyes and take them right to the throne room. Because the thing is, your example of your relationship with Jesus will, it will show them what it should be like. That's what will really do it. And then when you take them to the Lord and they find that beautiful presence of the Lord themselves, then what, then the only thing you can do is just pray that they grow deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's what will you know, that's what will protect them from the lies of the enemy. That's what will keep their feet planted on solid ground. That's what will get them interested in reading the word and interested in hearing good teaching. I encourage you right now, there's probably one or two or five young people in your own life. I encourage you right now to take those people to the throne room and ask the Lord for some creative ways that you can love on them and give them a taste of what it's like to love the Lord. I bless you today and I bless you with hearing the truth and knowing the truth and that it would grow up in you. Amen.